welcome to Lease FM. Today I'm with Rich Cohen. He's in town right now um, touring his book, The Chicago Cubs, Story of a Curse. And um, we had him on Rick Cogan's show last week um, to talk about the book and about his background and a bunch of other cool stuff he's working on. But I wanted to have him here to open up a little further on his on his early days, his writing influences. Um, so thank you so much for joining me. Very happy to be here. It's really an honor. Um, I mean, I'm looking at your pages. I printed out your like basically your whole website, and it's just like pages and pages of books. And I'm like, wow, one person can write that many things. It makes me tired just looking at it. <laughs> Seriously. Um, so... Let's talk about let's talk about the the kind of writing that you do just to open it up. Is it mostly nonfiction, all nonfiction, or does it kind of? I wrote a kids novel. Okay. With my kids in mind. Aww. Other than that, it's all nonfiction. Okay. But cool. I, it's like narrative nonfiction. So hopefully you read it. It's like reading a novel, but it's like a true novel. Yeah, totally. Um, so you usually find like one character to kind of see the story through, or it several? sort of depends on the story. I wrote a book called The Fish That Ate the Whale about. This guy named Sam the Banana Man, he sort of made a huge, he ran United Fruit. He, that was one story, one guy. A story like the Cubs is like a whole collection of people, so it's like a group portrait. Yeah. You know, when I was working on my book about the 85 Bears, my editor said just a little thing that was so helpful. He said, think of it like a scrapbook, you know, with different pictures of different things. And you have a theme, and the theme in that case was the Bears. The theme in this case is the Cubs. And But if it works like it's supposed to, Cubs history is so rich, it's like American history in a funhouse mirror Yes. since the baseball starts. So since after the Civil War till now, if you tell the history of pro baseball properly, then you really tell the history of the United States, everything good and bad, you know? Yeah, it's that's so true. It's such a good way to, a lens to look at it through. Um, so, okay, so let's let's talk first about um, about storytelling and, and how you why you decided to become because that's what you are basically storyteller that writes right um right. so where where did that come in early on in your life like what attracted you to that kind of way of being well i'm the youngest brother and maybe i had to like be entertaining to get attention i feel like <laughs> i'm and the I, youngest too and and i had to be way. funny i had yeah. to be funny all the time and um i feel like so there was two things one is as always telling stories and playing for laughs. And then two, maybe because I was looking for material, I'd always say like, I'd go to the supermarket and come home with a friend and like, I would think three things had happened to us, three incredible things, uh -huh. and he would have no idea that anything <laughs> happened to us. <laughs> so so it's not like one's lying and one's telling the truth, right. it's just like what you notice and what looks yeah. like a story to you. Very observant reading between the lines. Right, and I thing. thought when I was young, I was interested in writing, but I wanted to be like a filmmaker, oh. you know? And I used to make a lot of movies uh -huh. with my friends on videotape and everything. Like literal tape. Yep, I still have them. One was called Cross Now. One was called The Humiliator, about a guy like a detective show. But you can hire this guy to humiliate people for money. If it's like a bully, you That's hire this guy. That's not a bad idea. Yes. They're all good ideas, I yeah. think. Yeah. <laughs> and I had this idea that I would make movies and uh, I would go to film school. Okay. Now, I didn't have any money. Yeah. So I said to my father, I want to go to film school. And he said... You can go to film school after you go to law school, medical school, and veterinary school. And, and if you do all that and still want to go to film school, <laughs> I'll send you to film school. There's some tough love, huh? And I didn't want to go to law school. No. So I realized, well, th this is a stupid way to get into writing, but I was always interested in writing, but I was like, 
I don't, there's no overhead, man. I just need a pad and a pen yeah. and myself and that's it. And that's really when I started to begin, become a writer. Wow. So that was what age would you say were you like, yeah, I'm going to do Well, I've been writing. writing. I mean, I wrote short stories in high school mm-hmm. and I wrote, I worked, you know, for the newspaper and everything, Nutria News and everything. Oh, yeah. Um, but that was a point where I sort of gave up on the film school idea. That was like right after college. And then I sent applications to a lot of magazines because I didn't know what else to do. And I got an interview at the New Yorker magazine, which was amazing thing because I I didn't go to a great college. I didn't go to a bad college either, but everybody else there went to like an Ivy League school and I didn't do that. I mean, and I wasn't a great student in high school and I was at parties when I should have been studying and uh-huh. I was getting stories, yeah. material, right. out there living life. Research, man, yeah. for sure. And um, and I got a job there. And, um, wow. And what then was I started your reading. Were you a writer? I or? was a messenger, but they had me really working as a receptionist. Okay. So mostly, and they and I was a real bad receptionist. <laughs> and there were two floors. There was the floor where all the editors were. That was where all the action was. Mm-hmm. And for that, you needed a good receptionist. And there was the floor where all the writers were. Where almost nothing, there was, almost nothing happened. You just right. sat at a desk all day, and nothing happened. So, I was right down the hall from the New Yorker Library, wow, where they had all the old issues. So I basically just went back, and read, the entire New Yorker magazine, up to a certain point. Oh so my that God. really became that's where I learned how to write these stories. And I was at that point still thinking fiction writer. Yeah, I, I mean it wasn't. And then when I'd read the New Yorker, the stories that were interesting to me was kind of a story you don't even see that much in The New Yorker. They yeah. were like in the middle. They were not literary nonfiction. And to me, they were so much more interesting than the fiction because fiction had all these rules about plot, blah, 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 blah. And the nonfiction was free. Yeah. That's how it looked to me. Totally. Yeah, and it, it is it is so different, like writing something that's apparently that's true or that has happened um, versus kind of having liberties to do, do you find as a literary nonfiction writer? Is that what you would call yourself then technically? If you had. Yeah, that? I guess. Um, Just writer. Really. Yeah, writer. Um, yeah. But do you find writing that in that style? Is it like a constant kind of you still have the journalist mentality a little bit? Well, everything's got to be completely true. Yeah. So, but it's good because it's like playing tennis with a net. I mean, there's a net there. The ball's got to go over the net. Right. And that gives shape to everything else. Yeah. But it also means, you know, one thing I didn't like about a lot of fiction that I read in college was the plots, man. I thought the plots were stupid. <laughs> like what? Like what's the typical, like, you know, plot you hated? Someone's got to, like, when you, when you go to a movie. Yeah. And you're like, the beginning of the movie, everyone's having a great time. Mm-hmm. And you know something horrible's got to happen. Yeah. Everybody's got to suffer. A guy's got to, people got to fall in love and hate each other's guts. Right. They're probably going to be throwing stuff at each other. And then at the end, they're going to be right back where we are right now. <laughs> it's just like, why can't we just stay here? This right. is nice, yeah. you know? Yeah. That's why a movie like Dazed and Confused, you ever see that movie? No, I, you know, it's on my list, but. It's a great movie. And I liked it because there's really no plot. Right. You know, because it's really about, so. That movie's about like the last day of high school. But yeah. every last day of high school movie's like end of senior year, where's everybody gonna go? Melancholy. This is the last day of junior year. Nothing's happening. <laughs> you know, but it's just about the the plot is stuff like about capturing what it felt like. Yeah. That's what I was more interested in than right. in, like something happening. I didn't want the what it felt like and all that to be the background. I want it to be the foreground. Mm-hmm. So Days and Confused, it's like they're gonna have a party at a guy's house, but the guy's parents find out so they can't. That's the plot. <laughs> but they have then to it's find like some, so then they have the party of, somewhere else. Right. But it's all about the little details yeah. of being a 
junior in high school and wanted to go to a party. Yeah. And, and that's a link later film. Yeah. And I mean, I always have talked about boyhood in kind of the same light as like this is like it spans 12 years. And like, yeah, a lot of stuff happens, but it's really just like pretty much this kid's life. And it's not like because it's all dies. about it's all about how it felt. Yeah. You know, like trying to get down what it was like to be 17 or mm-hmm. whatever before it just completely dissolves from your mind. Yeah. So the plot is actually a plot, I realize now, thinking about it, actually gets in the way of that because then the plot becomes what it's about. Right. And the other stuff just becomes the setting. Yes. But the setting really is the plot. Yeah. That makes sense. No, that's cool. I love that for sure. Um, Okay, so let's get into this uh, Chicago Cubs Story of a Curse book. Um, And we can talk about your writing influences, you know, in relation to that or or just – in general, um, what would you say would be like your first influence? Maybe at in that younger time, would you say the New Yorker was like? Well, the writer that was the big influence for me was Joseph Mitchell. Okay, who's that? He wrote these uh, unbelievably great New Yorker profiles about. At the beginning of his career, he kind of wrote them about. Well, you call them outsiders, like bearded lady, kind of a homeless bohemian who was writing the world's longest book. Uh, people like that, and yeah. then as and and he was looking for kind of a strangeness in everyday life, and then as he got older, his stories became better, and they became more about finding kind of what was beautiful and strange and seemingly normal people's lives. So he wrote a lot about the New York waterfront, about uh, guys with oyster boats, about a town called Edgewater, New Jersey, where guys just went fishing all the time, uh, you know. And then his last story was this famous story called Joe Gold's Secret, where he kind of unmasked and unmade one of his own famous stories. But he, but the thing about him was, what I liked about him is what I liked about, like, Jack Kerouac mm-hmm. when I was a kid or Ernest Hemingway or, you know, whoever it was, which was, it was his language. Yeah. He was beautiful. It was, like, super lyrical, and the people would say it was simple, but it wasn't simple at all. It was super complicated, but it seemed simple, and it was almost like the rhythm of his words. It was almost like... That was it. It was the coolest thing in the world. I yeah. thought it was the coolest thing in the world, and immediately that's what I wanted to do. And that's when I really – and it was never about the plot. There was no plot. Right, because it know? was these profiles. It was yeah, like a character sketch. Yeah, but check it out. It's so deep. That's awesome. His name again was Joseph – Mitchell. Mitchell. Okay, okay. Life-changing. Cool. No, that's great. I'm actually going to write that down. Um, okay, so you would read those when you were kind of in your early 20s in the New York, I still read them all the you time. Still read I still them reread the them all the time. And it's a weird thing because when I was young, I thought, okay, here I am as a writer and here's Joseph Mitchell like 100 yards away. And if I could ever catch up to Joseph Mitchell and I can, and now that I'm older and I read him again, I'm like, okay, here I am and here's Joseph Mitchell. And now he seems like 1,000 yards away. Yeah. Like, the more I write, wow. the better he seems because maybe I could see what, uh, what he's doing is impossible to right. do. And he does it over and over again, you know? And what was his era? When was he? Uh, he was a newspaper guy in New York, like in the 20s. And then he started writing stories for The New Yorker really in the 30s. And he wrote a lot of profiles from the 30s. And then his last story was his famous story, Joe Gould's Secret, I think was published in 1963. And then he never turned in another story ever again, even though he lived to something like 1993. What a legend. He and, was just done. That was it. And it was like, you know, people said he's like the nonfiction J.D. Salinger because mm-hmm. he was still coming to the – I was a receptionist. Yeah. Oh, so you, you yeah. saw him all the time. Oh, yeah. He'd come in. 
old guy dressed like it's 1930 in seersucker suit, <laughs> fedora hat in the summer, you know, wool wow. suit in the winter, go back to his office and people could hear him typing, but he never turned anything in. And recently, this guy wrote a very good biography of him and came across some of what he had written in those oh. years. And the New Yorker published some of it. And what's wild is some of it's crazy yeah. and not finished, oh. but some of it is just as brilliant as anything he ever wrote. Wow. Huh, that is that's really cool. So so writing about people, what what have you gleaned from like from those profiles that you read? Like what was it about how he captured a, a person or whatever that you've then tried to transmute? Well, I think he found like that each person was sort of like a deep expression of the human condition, no mm-hmm. matter who it was. Like that basically that's what I'm saying at the beginning of like the bearded lady and that stuff, but it was more like Everybody was just like struggling to survive. I mean, it was he started in New York during the Depression. One of the stories he wrote was called The Cave Dwellers, about a couple living in a cave in Central Park who don't want to be written about because they're humiliated. Yeah. So that was like, you know, uh, that's what that's a thing. And that's probably what he would say. I mean, to me, really, it was his language and it was his voice. But also the thing is that he was so deeply interested in people's humanity you know, that that's what always connected all his stories. And he found it in more and more common people. Wow. That sounds awesome. Um, so, okay. So then putting that into, in the perspective of, of the, the new book, the Cubs book, uh-huh. um, what, what characters do you have there? Um, oh what? man, the Cubs history is full of them. I mean, yeah, they're, they're everywhere. I mean, you start with the Cubs first great superstar was Mike Kelly, mm-hmm. who was the guy who, you know, he drank a lot and he did a lot. He invented a lot of things in baseball. He was the first guy to slide, supposedly. He invented all the different slides. He was wow. he, he was the first guy to back up other players. He was the first catcher to make up signals to communicate with the pitcher. And um, and he was so popular in Chicago, but he was drinking all the time. <laughs> and the captain of the Cubs was Cap Anson, hired a private detective to follow him. And he got really mad. And then they actually hired the private detective, and then charged him the private detective's fee from his salary. Oh. So he's like, to hell with this. Oh, and hell. that That's resulted in, in him leaving Chicago and no. going to play in Boston for the team that was called that became the Red Sox, yeah. but was then called the Boston Bean Eaters. Okay. Bean Eaters. Bean Eaters. And those you know, name. early names are unbelievable. Yeah. The Cubs were then called the White Stockings. Right. And, um, and there's many great things about him, but one of the – my favorite things is he died in a hospital in Boston when he's still pretty young, and he had the greatest last words in baseball history. He said, "Well, boys, it looks like I'm sliding home for the last time." <laughs> Are you kidding? Yeah, that's oh, what I mean. Man. You know, it's like legend, but yeah, of course. You know, so and then so, you got Three Finger Brown, mm-hmm. and Grover Cleveland Alexander, and Hack oh, yeah. Wilson, and how do you how do you research these guys? Like, what what's your approach? What was your approach like? Like, and you know, you know the names already, right? My approach is to gather as much information as I can before I start even thinking about writing. So just like everything, like books, library books, books internet. oral histories. Yeah. Oh, that's a big one, I bet. Yeah. Newspapers, any old footage. Yeah. Best if you can get contemporary accounts. Mm-hmm. You know, when Mike Kelly died, it was front page news all over the country. Right. So, and you can read about that. Yeah. Baseball is a great thing to write about because everything's recorded. Yeah. You know? Uh, and these guys were celebrities even then, so they were written about. Yeah. So, and then, you know, there was a great book, I, I'm forgetting the name, 
and it's like the best baseball book I've ever read. And it's called, it's a famous book, but it's called like the, in the you should look it up. It's okay, called like I'll look the it up. Name of Their Time or something. Okay. My brain's starting to gum tired. <laughs> right. But um, it's oral. Basically, this guy went around and he interviewed these guys from early baseball mm-hmm. before they died. I mean, he had a sense like he's going to record this history before it disappeared. Right. And he interviewed a lot of those guys, and even those guys were dead, but they were they they knew him. There's like a ch- living chain, yeah. of witness. Wow, awesome! And and you're part of that now. <laughs> I like to think I yeah, am trying to be. No, that's that's great. <laughs> um, and putting it into context of you know the later years is is really cool. I'm sure I can't wait to read the book. Um, okay, so let's get back to the influences. So we've got Joseph Mitchell setting the tone, character uh-huh. profiles. Who who else? What other writers or well, uh, before Joseph Mitchell, even another writer that sort of was blew blew me away was um, Walker Percy. You ever okay. read Walker Percy? Mm-mm. No. So I went to Tulane. Okay. And I was like homesick. New, New Orleans. Orleans, yeah. And I felt like there nobody understands me down here. I mean, it's, <laughs> the leaves are all weird. Right. It's palm trees. It's hot. Yeah. Like in Chicago, the leaves are just turning and it's getting cold and you're wearing jean jackets. Right. And everyone's walking around in Bermuda shorts with giant to-go cups. I mean, it's like <laughs> vacation that never ends. Yeah. And I felt lo- very homesick and I lost. Bet. And I went to the Tulane bookstore and there was this book. I, it turns out he's a very famous writer, but I didn't I, I didn't know who he was. Yeah. And uh, he wrote these he, – he's, he's actually a professor, not at Tulane, but at the school next door. He's right there. And he wrote this fam- – the book that made him famous is called The Movie Goer. Mm-hmm. And his second book was also, I think his greatest book is called The Last Gentleman. Oh, that then sounds cool. He was a kind of an alcoholic and, his, and he was kind of depressed. He had suicide in his family. Mm-hmm. And his work kind of ran down a little bit. Yeah. It became too reliant on plot, to mm-hmm. be honest. There you go. And, um, but there was always flashes of what he could do, which is he could um, basically describe things you've been thinking your whole life but didn't realize. Yeah. You know I mean, put them into words. Be like, oh, I didn't even know anybody else could think that, <laughs> right. you know. And he could just name it, and once yeah, it was it was incredibly liberating and exciting, you know. And they're they're I really books of ideas that they're about ideas and about yeah. How do you live your life and how do you get through life? And he struggled. I mean, he his father killed himself. I think his grandfather killed himself. He's raised by his uncle. Oh gosh. And his uncle was good friends with William Faulkner, who used to come over and play tennis. No big deal. You know. Yeah. And his, cool. un- his uncle had written a famous book called Lantern on Lanterns on the Levee. It's very, really interesting, cool family, but great. He basically showed me that you could take ideas that were half formed and fix them by naming them. Cool. So how have how have you used that in your? I mean, I think you all use it all the time. Yeah. I couldn't think of an example, but when you tried it, like something early in the Cubs book. Just trying to describe, you know, what it's like as a kid to see Wrigley, see the field for the first time, come yeah. through the tunnel and see all the mm-hmm, grass, you mm-hmm. know, see the, and about the players and like, you know, the idea of a professional baseball player. Yeah. You know, like that you have to be at this level that's beyond every other level. And that even the, wor- you know, that's like a philosophical idea about right. kind, of, the kind of excellence. Yeah. And Walker Percy was just excellent, excellent at describing that. That's awesome. Yeah. Wow. Um, so so let's talk about your your Cubs fandom because obviously that plays a part huge part in this book. Um and while we're there like tell me about your first game at Wrigley. I know you've probably talked about it a bunch of No, this no, week. I really haven't. Okay. My first game at Wrigley which was 
My father's from New York. He's from Brook. My parents are from. They're Brooklyn people. Yeah. <laughs> my as Brooklyn as you get. My father's from Bensonhurst, Brooklyn, which mm-hmm. is like you know on the water. Right. Gravesend Bay. My mother's from Flatbush. Okay. And they met in the NYU cafeteria. Like you know. Can't get much more. Yeah. <laughs> my dad went that, to. Yeah. He was in the army. Then he went to night school. Mm-hmm. And while he was in night school. And he went to went to college on the GI Bill of Rights, mm-hmm. and then he went to law school at night at NYU. And during the day, he was working as a claims adjuster for Allstate to make money. He was, wow. got, was married, had my sister was born. Oh my gosh! And um, he was uh, really good at it. Yeah. And so good that he started to ascend through the corporate ranks while he still. Yeah, they eventually got out of law school. Yeah. And they transferred him to work at Sears. Okay. And he ended up like a pretty big executive at Sears. Uh Uh-huh. And he moved, he came out here one weekend and asked the guys at Sears, where should I live? And they said, you should live in Libertyville. (laughs) So he just randomly just bought a house in Libertyville. Uh Uh-huh. And then my my brother, my sister, my mother, my father, they all moved here. Yeah. And then I was born here. Okay. Okay. And then they moved later to Glencoe because- And you were the youngest. So you were the only one born here. I I was the only one born here. I was the youngest by many years. Yeah. Okay. And um, my father's a baseball kid, baseball fanatic. Yeah. He used to like, you know, sneak into Ebbets Field. Classic. Yes. So he loved Wrigley Field because it said, he said it reminded him of Ebbets Field. Right. Except the difference was that Ebbets Field was an enclosed park. That's what okay. he said. But now Wrigley Field's kind of an enclosed yeah, park, too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because of the scoreboards right. and the way they built the seats up. But back then, it was like the bleachers were separate from the rest of the stadium, mm-hmm. and it was open. And, um, you know, he knows a lot about baseball. And we watched this Cubs game where the Cubs were playing the Cincinnati Reds in 1976. And Cincinnati, that, those were some of the best teams in the history of baseball. They repeated in the World Series as the Big Red Machine. Oh, okay. Tony yes, Perez yes, yes. and um, and uh, Don Gullett and mm-hmm. Johnny Bench and Pete Rose and George Foster and Joe Morgan. It's an all-star team. And okay. you saw them play at Wrigley. Yeah, and the Cubs. And I knew who they were. How are the I, Cubs at that point? Bad, really bad. <laughs> but the Cubs were winning. Oh. And I was like, all right, the Cubs are going to. And then the Cubs lost. Oh, yeah. Well, but. And I that saw sounds familiar. hecklers. I'd never seen a heckler. Yeah. I saw a grown man who was drunk screaming obscenities at Larry Bittner, you know? <laughs> and um, I was just, I liked it. Yeah. And on the way <laughs> home, my father said, I How want old you. are you? Uh, like eight. Okay, good. On the way home, my father said, you know, I want you to promise me you won't be a Cubs fan. Because mm-hmm. Cubs fans just expect to lose. And they're going to have a bad life because they have lower expectations and then I became so that's my first Cubs game yeah and then you're like challenge accepted I'm a yeah, Cubs fan now exactly haha <laughs> wow how, how does he is he still alive oh yeah actually last <laughs> year during the World that? Series I was at the game uh-huh oh wow which the game yeah it was was at mostly all the playoff games I okay. got a press pass yeah and um I talked to my sister afterwards my father's watching with my sister and when Raji Raji Davis tied the game up mm-hmm she said, my father was just sitting on the couch in her house chuckling. <laughs> <laughs> so, yep, there it goes. Here it is. Oh, God. Well, <laughs> jokes But he him. was happy for me. <laughs> yes. I mean, come on. Yeah, he was happy. Been waiting long enough. Yeah. Um, wow. So cool. I love it. Um, so, okay. Getting – so when did you decide that you needed to write this book? Well, the truth is I've been ri- kind of writing it for 20 years. <laughs> So it's I been have. a long time coming, yeah. I mean, everybody says, like, you know, because my third book was about growing up on the North Shore. Mm-hmm. 
with my friends. And that was called? Lake Effect. Okay, cool. And um, if you look at that book, there's a whole section on the, the Cubs. Yeah. And the 84 Cubs. Some uh-huh. of the same stuff. Because the collapse of the 84 Cubs is a very big event in my life. You yeah. Know, kind of made me, gave me my sensibility, I what, think. What happened there? I didn't, I was too young to realize that the Cubs were snake bit. Yeah. You know what I mean? Uh-huh. And the Cubs were great. Right. I thought they were one of the greatest teams of all time. I thought they were like the Cincinnati Reds. And I thought they would just devastate anybody they played. And they started off that way. They won the division. They won the first two games of the playoffs. I was at the first. They won the first game 13 to nothing. <laughs> Rick Sutcliffe was a pitcher, hit a home run in that game. Bob Dernier was a leadoff hitter, hit a home run to lead off the game. Yeah. And, um, and they won the second game also handily, not close. And then they went out to San Diego playing. was a pretty mediocre team, in my opinion. I still think so. Yeah. And they led in every game. And they lost every game. Three. Bam, bam, bam. It was unbelievable. It was like yeah. each game. And it was like, didn't make sense. Mm-mm. And there was a big, Liam Durham, the ball went through his legs at first base. Mm-hmm. At the end of the game, there were people in the stands in San Diego swinging cubby bears on nooses and chanting 40 more years. <gasps> and by the way, they turned out to be pretty right if you do the math. Whoa. Yeah. Just, oh my. You know, so, um, <laughs> That's crazy. I mean, not quite 40 years, yeah. but like 30 years. Yeah. So, um, uh, I forgot what I was talking so about. So that affected you in a big way. Yeah. And it just, you know, that, that after that, you couldn't really feel the same about the Cubs because you had to protect yourself from yeah. injury. No, it's true. You know? I mean, yeah. <laughs> yes. As someone who, my first Cubs game, I think I was like nine months old or something. My parents were big, you know? Yeah. My brother's was like when he was two weeks old. Um, right. So we were definitely drinking the Kool-Aid all right. the way through, you know, and it was just, you kind of just have to, it, it's just, it's your team, so it's not like you're ever going right. to not be, you know. But right, then, but you have to, but you know, it's like getting hurt. It is like getting, it's getting heartbroken like over and right, over. Right, so you get hurt, you're never quite as vulnerable yeah. again because you've learned from experience that this right. thing can hurt me. Yeah, totally. Um so, so you were writing it over 20 years, kind of, and were you always kind of like, this is going to come out once they Well, win? and then I, so I did, I wrote Lake Effect. I wrote this story for Harper's Magazine where I went yeah. on the road with the Cubs. Oh, cool. And Which, I tried to, it was, it's called, was called Down and Out Wrigley Field. Uh-huh. And uh, I heard, re- I read recently in a review that it's a classic. Oh, hello. I until now, I thought it was kind of hated. I'm like, really? <laughs> I wish somebody would have told me at the time when, oh, they were, when people were yelling man. at me about Ain't it, that. you know? Yep. And, um. <laughs> And uh, and I wrote story for the Wall Street Journal how Wrigley Field should be destroyed. That pissed off a lot of people. Oh, what was that one? Well, when I interviewed, um, you know, the general manager of the Cubs, and I said, "Why can't the Cubs win?" Yeah, they spend money, they do everything. Mm-hmm. And he said, uh, "Wrigley Field's at fault." You know, and now it's a common thing, which is people talk about Wrigley Field schizophrenic. Huh. But no one talked about that then. I never yeah. heard it until he told me that. Right. And he made the case that. The Cubs were the best team in baseball until they moved into Wrigley Field and never won again. Okay, never won another World Series again. Never won in Wrigley Field. Right. They won in the West Side grounds. Oh. And his point was that when the when the wind blows in, it's a uh, pitcher's park. When the wind blows out, it's a hitter's park. Mm-hmm. So you have two parks. Yeah. So you have no home field advantage. Interesting. So you, have to, you have to build what he said is almost an all-star team. Yeah. Which is kind of what they've done. Right. You know, so like took some time, just, but we got there. But like the Yankees, you know, have this famous short porch in right field uh-huh. where a very 
basically like a regular fly ball down the line is a home run to Wrigley Field. So Wrigley Field, the Yankees build for that. They yeah. can have guys who are you know maybe not great power hitters in other places, but if they're le- if they're left-handed pull hitters, mm-hmm. they'll hit 35 home runs at Yankee Stadium. And they can get guys like that. And Wrigley Field doesn't really have that. Yeah. Same with Fenway Park with the big wall. Right, right, right. Usually parks have sub idiosyncrasy you can build around. Wrigley Field doesn't. Yeah. So I was sort of, it was like an attempt at satire. Yeah. And it was over the top. <laughs> but people took me completely seriously. And so that I, one's not a classic, maybe. <laughs> well, I think it's, a, I mean, <laughs> it I sort of said, because I, I said, you know, Wrigley Field should be destroyed. Yeah. And this is the only solution now. Right. Right. But at the end of this Cubs book, I say that they should never play baseball again in America. I mean, nobody's taking that completely. I'm making a yeah, point. Right. And they should salt the fields where Wrigley Field stood so nothing can grow there again. Mm-hmm. And the remains of Wrigley Field should be buried far out of the city in a place nobody knows where it is. So no, so Kind of like Hitler's to, bunker. You know, I said yeah. like like Moses' grave. Like right, no one knows where go. Moses no one knows is buried. Yeah. So, um, but I was making a point. Yeah. You know, and the funny thing is, and then I was being attacked by people. Is this online at this point? Yeah. Was it posted? So you probably had all the cyber comments. Yeah. And-, and then it continued. You know what it stopped? Carrie Wood had retired. <laughs> uh-huh. And they said, why can't the Cubs win? And he said, I think it's Wrigley Field. He said something like that and it just stopped dead. <laughs> he must read your article. <laughs> well, but it, you know what, though? And then I think the scoreboards changed Wrigley Field a little bit. Yeah. It's still schizophrenic, but it's nothing like it was when the wind could whip through. Right. You know, there's two giant wind breaks, basically. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. That's a good point. I didn't think about that. How do you like the scoreboards? I love them. They're great, right? No, it's the kind of thing where I was a totally traditionalist. I was against mm-hmm. lights, against scoreboards. And then you have them. You're like, you know, it's like when your parents want to get a really kind of car, you think, yeah, it's kind of. Yeah. And you're like, you know what? I like having a little computer on board and a little fridge in the back. Right. You know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you totally. get used to it very fast. No, you do. And then it's like weird with, I'm sure it'd be weird without them if we take them away now. I'd be like. Right. What? Well, it's like the phone or yeah. Else. Right. Exactly. Yeah. I actually just went to um a game actually last two Sundays ago at uh, Miller Park, and it's I way prefer our, our score or our jumbotrons here to the one there. It was just like really obnoxious and and just like the whole vibe. It's just right. They did a very good job. I think. yeah, they did. They really did. Um. Okay. Back to influences. So let's talk about sports writing or you know sports storytelling. Um. Do you have like a an influence there would you say or did you kind of pave the way for your your own kind of writing about well, teams I think you know when you're talking about what I'm writing it's not so much just sports writing it's kind of like action mm-hmm. visual stuff and portraits of people and history and history yeah and for me maybe there's a bunch of influences but a big one was Tom Wolf oh yeah Electric Kool-Aid Acid Test. And The Right Stuff. Yeah. I read he, I read The Electric Kool-Aid Acid yeah, Test for Yeah, Read my The Right Stuff. You know? Journalism. Okay, I've And the way one. he wrote about the astronauts, John Glenn and mm-hmm. Gene Shepard, and mm-hmm. gave, and really the way he wrote about, um, you know, the guy who, uh, uh, Chuck Yeager. Oh, yeah. Who broke the speed of sound. Right. You know, and he wrote about, I mean, that to me was just as mind-blowing as Joseph Mitchell, you know, uh, and I still go back to that, yeah. you know. It doesn't hold up quite as well as Joseph Mitchell. It still holds up. Right. Joseph Mitchell gets better. Yeah. And know? he's older. Yeah. Yeah. But um, but when I first read it, it was like, you know, it's like suddenly seeing there's a completely different way to do things. Yeah. And it's not sports writing, but it's kind of like sports writing because especially the right stuff. And he did some sports writing. He wrote a really famous profile of Muhammad Ali, I think, and 
he wrote one of the greatest sports stories ever written, I think, which is about the race car driver Junior Johnson oh. called The Last American Hero. I think I read that in my in my journalism yeah. class. Um, huh. Yeah, no, that's, that's cool. He's, I mean, electric fluid acid does. I just remember reading it and being like, I feel like I'm like... <laughs> right, but with the, he got so lucky in that because it's almost like you can't even use it as a model because yeah. he got tapes yeah. of people talking while they were on LSD and right. stuff. When do you get a source like that? No. That's like a, you know. Yeah. But the, but the right stuff he had to build, the way I'm talking about, with research and interviews. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah. Um, what's your, like, interview process like? Are you on the phone a lot? Are you, do you try to get I hate person? interviewing people on the phone. Yeah, it's hard. I do it. I just don't like it. Yeah. It, usually, you know, I don't like it. I don't, also, and I write for Vanity Fair and stuff. Mm-hmm. One big thing traditionally is, like, secondaries, like, I don't like those either. I think they're stupid. Which is like, like if you're gonna write a profile of like a movie star, then you talk to somebody else about how great that person yeah. is. Yeah, I mean it's like it's like why? Yeah, it's like a blurb on a book. I yeah, mean, you right. know what I mean. <laughs> but it's a way to get other famous people into a story. So if they search, I guess. But you know what I mean. But but as far as like, I don't think it adds anything to the story. Unless sometimes somebody does have a great story that the person right. isn't telling. Yeah. That's something else. Yeah. You know, but so much better to interview people in person and then do it for a long period of time and then like leave and be done. Yeah. It's just like, yeah, that's it. Yeah. Like you're talking like a day at a coffee shop or like, or, you know, depending. Sometimes it's like, you know, like I wrote Maria Sharapova's book with her. Yeah. I wanted to ask you about that. And I spent like, you know, like a month with her. Wow. And then we're done. I mean, we still, we're friends now. Right. But it's like, they're like, I sort of always feel like, like the for me, mm-hmm. like the research part ends, and, and then the then rep- the writing, then the writing. It's got to, and when you're writing, you don't want to be like nothing coming in. Yeah, that's how I feel. Do you, but you're like checking your facts and stuff. Yeah, well, you got to you do all that when you're done with the first draft. Okay, and then you can add more reporting then. Yeah, but the main thing is get something down, mm-hmm. and then you can do everything you have to do. Right. No, oh, totally. That's awesome. Um, I think we've reached number five. We've talked about a lot of different writers. Uh-huh. Is there one person or or movement, or do you want to just talk about the Cubs? Like, why, no, why did I you want to say tell the Cubs one other story? person I'd like to mention who I've always read but has become more and more influential as I've gotten older is uh, Joan Didion. Oh, God. Yeah. I actually have her book out from the library right now. Yeah. Yeah. What about, what about her? Well, it's a little bit like Walker Percy in a mm-hmm. way. There's a flat affect to her writing voice. But it's really all about juxtapositions and what follows what. Yeah. And this idea that, you know, one of the things I hate in a lot of writing is the totally unnecessary transitions. Any kind of word that's a dead word. Yeah. Like, meanwhile, yeah. indeed. You know what I mean? <laughs> right. And Tom Wolfe actually uses a lot of that. Yeah. But what Joan Dinian showed me is if something's structured right, you don't need any transitions. No. It's, the... it's like arranging photographs on a table. Right. And you look at this one, then you look at this one, and it's like the jarring juxtapositions that are interesting. Totally. And that's what she's so great at, which is organizing her work into very either vivid thoughts, vivid ideas, or vivid images that are then arranged in a certain order all together, which equal the story. Yeah. She's the master at that. Yeah. No, that's that's great. Um, so, okay, so rounding it all out, um, let's talk about how this how this book is structured. Is it a chronological kind of view of the curse of the cubs or is it do you jump well, back and I, forth I, how's that i basically i don't think 
unless there's a very good reason, this is what I've come to believe, it should be chronological. Yeah. Because that's how we live our lives. Right. It wouldn't. It's you know not like I mean? an Annie Hall. There's other, some people like yeah. mess it up just to be fancy. Yeah. To me, it's like almost like I always thought of it like jazz. Like if you have a very if you have a melody mm-hmm. and you always know what the melody is, then you could do all kinds of crazy stuff. And the melody is always in there. Yeah. And when you have a chronology, it's like a clock for the reader. Yeah. And they know where they are in the story and they can follow it. And then within the chronology, you can do stuff. Yeah. And sometimes people don't really get that it's even chronological because like if I want to describe, you know, like I wrote about my book before this was about the Rolling Stones. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to tell their history, but then I also went on the road at the Rolling Stones, and I wanted to tell about um, when I my relationship with them. Yeah. Okay. So, kind of like almost famous. Yeah, it was like almost famous, <laughs> just with a real much better band. <laughs> right. And um, so basically, there was a third aspect, but to be real simple about it, I had two chronologies. Mm-hmm. I had the chronology of the Rolling Stones, which is Mick and Keith as kids. Yeah. Meeting. Forming the Rolling Stones, becoming rock stars, blah, 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 till now. Yeah. And then I had me. Right. As a young person growing up in Glencoe, getting into the Rolling Stones, going to college, working at Rolling Stone, getting set on the road with the Rolling Stones, then becoming friends with them, and then becoming like a writing partner with Mick Jagger. Wow. Those are two separate chronologies. And I just sort of put one on top of the other, and they could jump back and forth. Yeah. So it was a good break for the reader. It was different kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. One could speak to the other, you know. Yeah. And you had these juxtapositions. So you could have Jagger when I meet him and he's 50, right after Jagger when he's 20. Uh-huh. So that's kind of cool. Right. But it's still chronological. Yeah. Very simple. It's like just two different strands together. Right. Cool. Wow. How, how are they? Are they great? Do you talk to them still? Not really, no. no. But they're good. I'm sure they're. <laughs> You're like, I have a book to prove that I was <laughs> exactly. They're still chapter. good. They're, I'm yeah. sure they're. I mean, as long as they haven't been replaced by androids. Yeah, sure exactly. Which who's to say? Yeah. Um, so cool. Um, let's just finish with like a little piece of advice that you have for young young writers, young storytellers, young creators. Um, you've clearly had a very established career up to this point, and will continue to do so. Um, what you know, why? what practice do you really attribute to that success? Or is it just really forcing yourself to write every day? Well, I think it's reading mm-hmm. and looking for stuff that it gets you, you excited about, finding that stuff, and writing. Like writing like maybe one-tenth as much as you read. Reading's way more important than writing. Really? Yeah, definitely. I mean, yeah. Totally. For a writer, right. you know, that's how you learn. And also, um, you know, trying to figure out why a story works. And, you know, like there is a great Hemingway quote where he said that writing isn't interior. It's architecture, not interior decoration. Mm-hmm. Hemingway is, would he say grew up, that. But, but and he grew up in Oak Park. Right. Across the street from a Frank Lloyd Wright house. Yeah. Watching it be built. Yeah. Wow. But that's really true, which is so much writing is interior decoration. Like it's what's important. That's why Joan Didion is so great because it's architecture. Yeah. And so is Joseph Mitchell. Right. It's just hers is a little bit more severe. It's more like modern in some way. So you can really see it. So um, I think that because of the Internet, everybody writes all the time in email. Yeah. Everything. A lot of writings turning into like email. Yeah. Stories are like email, you know, know. whereas like there's something about a story that's built, you know, like I'm going to start here 
and then I'm going to go here like a design yeah. that you then play out. And you figure that out by reading. Totally. Good advice. And we'll start with, with this list that you've so graciously given us awesome. over the last hour. Um, thank you so much. Um, go Cubs. Go Cubs. <laughs> and where can we find your uh, book? Barnes & Noble, Amazon. Amazon, Barnes & Noble, the Macmillan website. Cool. Great. Awesome. Again, it's called The Chicago Cubs Story of a Curse. Um, how long of a read is it? It's a pretty short book. Cool. I mean, that's another thing. I like, I'm a big into like trying to cut and cut and cut and condense and yeah. condense and condense. So what you wind up with is just a lot of stuff in as few words as possible. The architecture. Yeah. Get rid of the pillows. Absolutely. Yeah, totally. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for joining me, Rich. This All was right. awesome. Thanks a lot. And uh, this is Lisa FM. 